Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. Invention is the most important product of man's creative brain. The ultimate purpose is the complete mastery of mind over the material world. The harnessing of human nature to human needs is a quote from Nikola Tesla, the Serbian American inventor engineer and futurist, the man who invented the 20th century. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our discussion today, as our guest has had a long and successful career immersed in technology, from computing to telecommunications, and now chairs the National Scientific Research Agency. Our guest today is David Thody, AO, Chairman of CSIRO, Zero Limited, and Tyro Payments Limited. He's also non-executive director of Ramsey Healthcare Limited. David was appointed commissioner for the National COVID-19 Coordination Advisory Board. Previously, he was chief executive officer of Telstra Corporation and CEO of IBM Australia and New Zealand. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. In a forward-thinking discussion, David draws our attention to the multitude of opportunities in front of us, from how Australia can position itself favourably in the shift to renewable energy, to tapping into the potential of the world-class biotech and broader technology environments in our own backyard. Mindful of the past, David also shares with us learnings from a career that has seen him traverse countries, on the move for two-thirds of the year, and at the helm of one of the country's largest and most recognised organisations. So sit back and enjoy the great spectrum of opportunities. David, welcome to the show. Thanks, Greg. Good to be here. David, how does one who studies anthropology and English become a senior business leader? Oh, that's a great question, Greg. I'm not quite sure. Actually, there, there is a little bit of a story behind this one. I actually was a math science major through school, so I did math, applied math, chemistry, physics. When I went to university, I was going to do medicine, uh, but I decided that I wanted to do an undergrad degree. You know, the US does these sort of broad-based undergrad degrees, and I had a very understanding, you know, family who said, what are you doing? And then, okay, go do it. So I ended up doing the social sciences degree, which I really enjoyed. But then I sort of went, came back to my, uh, my roots, so to speak, and, you know, maths and science and stuff. What was life like at home? Where, where are you from? What was the family surroundings? And what was the sort of the, uh, the guiding lights for you? 
Yeah, yeah. Look, I had a great family. Parents were New Zealanders who came to you know Australia after the war. Went to Perth. Uh, I was born in Perth. Father worked for AMP, you know, a company in the news at the moment. And then we lived in Sydney, Brisbane. You know, they went back to New Zealand, and I, you know, had went to school there in Nelson and Otago. So yeah, very supportive family, quite well known in New Zealand. You know, so pretty middle class, but yeah, really, really great. I have great memories as a kid. You moved into the world of technology. Hmm. What What was the stimulus? I obviously, mathematics might have been one part of it, but do you want to talk us through where did the interest come from? Yeah, really interesting question. Uh, again, um, the genesis probably was, you know, it was that time of change. In fact, some of the work I'd done in the social anthropology was the impact of technology on society. So I was seeing this, you know, computerization, those days, big mainframes and, you know, big companies. But you, but you could see that the, 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 this genesis, this beginning of incredible change in society, and it really sort of interested me. I should also say my elder brother had uh, started to work for IBM in the UK, and uh, he said, oh, you know, and I was talking to him, and he said, oh, go, give it a go. And in those days, IBM used to have this uh, IQ test. I, I mean, you maybe not remember, but it used to be sort of the standard in the industry. I must have fluked it because you know, I somehow did okay in it. And I actually ended up starting at IBM as an engineer. I was a software engineer. But, you know, those days, uh, and I really applaud IBM, they would intentionally take people from a broad, you know, background. You know, so they had people who were psychologists, they had some computer science engineers, uh, so very broad, quite sort of forward thinking, really. But all they looked for was this analytical capability uh, as the basis. Actually, just on that and making having a bit of a detour, do you think companies think enough like that these days? Because as a search consultant, you're quite often you're almost regulated in the sense that I really wanted to focus focus on these companies and this industry background, and that flexibility or lateral thinking, whilst talked about very rarely gets up or is one get through, you know, the board decision-making process. So yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, yeah no, I, I really agree with you. I think you, look, you've got to be clear about what skills you're looking for, but then you've got to be willing to be surprised and therefore put yourself into a position where you think, oh, wow, I hadn't thought around that. Because I think that's the joy of life and, it's, and in business as well. It's sort of the unexpected and being open to that. And so often, I mean, in my own thinking, I, I get too narrow. And so I actually put myself into situations where I'm a little bit more uncomfortable. So I'm tested in what the, my view. So I think in relation to search, that's exactly the same thing in, in hiring people. Because, you know, people can come from, you know, really broad backgrounds and uh, can really contribute. So what is it, David? You've got this X factor of curiosity, is it, which which makes you think differently? <laughs> well, I should say yes, because I believe that's sort of one of the great skills to have. <laughs> oh, look, I enjoy life, Greg. You know, I enjoy people. I enjoy challenge, you know, don't always get it right like most people. But, you know, you know and and I, I'd hate to think that you ever stop learning, you know, and people are so rich, you know. So often we meet people and we don't spend enough time to really understand their story, and you walk away the richer for it. And I think that uh, it's a really important aspect of life and business that we need to really make sure we will develop or retain. Yeah, really agree. 22 years, wasn't it, with IBM? <laughs> it's a long time. I think it was 21. I think it was 21. But it was counted. Yeah, it was a long time, you know. I mean, 
fact, you look at my career, I only worked for two companies. Yeah. You know, I mean, in terms of, I should be, actually, I should be clear. I want to restate that. My full-time working career was only two companies because I plan to work until the day I die. I, I don't like this term retirement. I think you transition between different roles. But yeah, I, I had a great time at IBM. It, you know, it's one, it was one of those companies, one of the true you know, early multinationals. And what it provided me was this great spectrum of, of opportunities. I never felt like I was in a rut, you know, because it was big enough to be able to move between departments and divisions and, and geographies. And it's, you know, taught me a lot of skills. But 21 years is a long time. Uh, no, but what was the glue, David? What was the sort of the DNA of IBM during the, those most impressive days? Well, I, I joined sort of a, it sort of really just as it was at its pinnacle. So that was in 79, just after the antitrust wars. Remember, I mean, for those who know the IBM history, you know, again, if you look at what's going on with Google now, yep. IBM, big and then uh, the U.S. said, hey, we're going to break you up into three different divisions. Yes. And, uh, and I joined just after that, and it was still going very strongly. But interestingly, you could tell, I suppose, around the early 80s, it wasn't quite right. You know, the arrogance was starting to come in. It was, uh, it was you know, really dictating to customers, even though the values of IBM, you know, which I still remember, respect for the individual, best customer service, and a commitment to excellence in everything you do. Really good principles. But you could tell it was sort of going off. And then, of course, it was another eight years before it had that, I think, $6 billion loss, biggest loss in corporate you know, America. And But it, it, again, it was, it, if you think about it, it was culture that was really driving it. But it was a great company. People were great. As we talked about, they hired really good people. I, I can still remember, uh, Greg, when I joined, I, I joined as an engineer, and I, I joined in Wellington in New Zealand, and they put me through 12 months of training, 12 months. Is that right? And, and I was sort of a trainee, and a bit like big oil comes, and, and they sent me to Sydney, and I learned coding and how computers worked, and, and also they taught me how to give a presentation, you know, how, to, how to put on a white shirt. <laughs> But it, but it was it was great. I mean, you couldn't have got it anywhere else. It was like sort of a, a little mini MBA, really. Taught me how to you know uh, look at a balance sheet, P and L, cash flow, all that stuff. But it's so yeah, a whole year of training, uh, incredible experience in the US, David. Yeah, well, I mean, my career went like this. I I, I started in New, in New Zealand, then uh, in the what it was sort of the early 90s, they pulled Australia and New Zealand, you know, the normal Australasian collaboration. And I I was sort of the, uh, I think I was sort of the sacrificial middle manager sent to Sydney. And then I went, then I lived in Japan for five years in a regional role. Wow. And when I was there, I spent a lot of time in the US and in Europe. And that was a great experience. Yeah, look, um, US companies, look, I, I, I think you've got to say there's a lot of great strengths around the U.S. management model. I think mm -hmm. I learned the skills of people management, performance management, how to you know work within teaming, all those values and real traits that I think are really important in a career about how to create an environment to get to get the best out of your people. 
you know, collaboration, all those things. Uh, but it also had those other things of an American company that, you know, most of the senior executives had never lived outside of the US, so it really wasn't diverse. Even though it was multinational, it wasn't truly global. It, uh, you know, there was quite a hierarchy. Interesting, not as bad as you may think of some of the, you know, more, you know, the, the European companies, but there was still a sense of hierarchy and, you know, entitlement, you know, because of your position rather than your contribution. But at the same time, just wonderful people, you know, really talented. And remember, IBM was one of the first big tech companies that was investing 3 to 4% of revenues in R&D every year. Yeah, right. So, in, yeah, so it would have been, you know, two and a half, three billion dollars. And in those days, that was really big. And I think it really sort of did show in the long term around their ability to innovate and bring out new designs of chips, et cetera. So, yeah, better the background of working for a multinational, U.S. multinational. What was your takeaway and your experience in Japan? Oh, gee, you know, I mean, I, I think it was a really rich experience. By the way, my family was there too, so we were all there for five years. I was meant to go for two, and I ended up staying for five. Well, there was two parts to this. One was living in Japan, and I'll give you some insights to that, but also I was in a regional role, so I spent a lot of time in China, you know, worked across Southeast Asia, India, and also I was a liaison back to New York and then Paris. So I was traveling probably 220 days of the year. Oh, so there's a lot of, yeah, oh. yeah. Because I, I know the number because I had to do my tax return and <laughs> count how many days I was in Japan or not. So firstly, living in Japan, look, I mean, Japan is, um, I mean, I, I, I love Japan. Uh, I love, you know, the art. I love incredible attention to detail, the discipline, the sense of beauty they get from the small, you know, the Zen gardens, etc., you know, banzai trees, etc. But, you know, you talk around a hierarchy. I mean, you know, it was just impervious and and really hard to get make traction. You know, it's the old joke, you know, you'd you go down to IBM Japan and you'd sort of say something and they'd look at me and say, Thodi san, hi. And uh and that means obviously yes, and what it means is basically Okay, I heard you. <laughs> and then if you got two highs, it's, yes, I hear you, and I'll think about it, maybe. If you got three yeses, it was, yes, I heard you, I'll think about it. And I may even think a little bit about doing it, but I'm not sure. So you had to really get the commitment. You know, that took a long time to really build trust for them. But we had a great time there. When I was there, English was spoken in Tokyo, but once you got out of Tokyo, English wasn't, you know, the dominant language. But we, we had a great time. All the kids speak Japanese. We we, we, had, we did come back for their, you know, secondary school. But, yeah, we had a great time. But the experience for me was, you know, getting going into China. Opening up then, David, wasn't it? Yeah, it was opening up. So that was sort of late 80s and... When I the first time I went to Beijing, there was uh, the airport, which not the airport there now, but an older airport. Yeah. There was some, you know, the tar sealed motorway that went for about five kilometres and went to a dirt track. And the only place you could stay in Beijing was the Holiday Inn, which was like an American ghetto. You know, so <laughs> it was about it. So yeah, uh, but yeah, IBM again was very forward thinking. They had their headquarters for the Greater China region out of Hong Kong, then moved it to Beijing very early. Wow, okay. Yeah, managed Taiwan, 
Hong Kong and China as one group, which was pretty brave yes. uh, in those days. And uh, had a great time. But, yeah, spent a lot of time in India. Then, of course, you know, Indonesia, Philippines, um, were all opening up Thailand. So, yeah, great time. Um, by the way, anyone in their careers, if you have an opportunity to, you know, work overseas, you know, really immerse yourself in different cultures and business environments, I really recommend it. It just gives you a, a different you know, environment. One thing about Japan, you know, the concept of Nimawashi, you know, I always used to compare Japan versus the US because, uh, as you know, with in Japan, consensus building is really strong, frustrating, you know, really frustrating, you know, and the concept's Nimawashi, which is, you know, until you get everybody in agreement. So you take, you know, an idea down and they'd ask a thousand questions, you know, it was so frustrating, but they'd work it through, work it through. And then once they got it, you know, they're off, bang, you know, and they execute. Whereas in the US, and this is sort of a simplification in a way, it would sort of be classic, um, you know, take that hill. You know, the US would think about it, let's make a decision, bang, you know, not really think it all the way through. And then let's go, you know, and so they'd be far quicker to action. But often they're taking the wrong hill, you know. So uh, whereas the Japanese would take longer to make a decision, but then execute really well, the US tended to make more, you know, shoot from the hip decisions yeah. and then maybe have to re reorientate yourself. Now both both can be valuable in different situations, but it used to be quite, you know, distinct, you know, ways of approaching complex problems. But just on that, if you're going to overlay that, how would you describe the decision making in China compared to those two? They're pretty quick, but it's it's about looking good. You know, it's about face. So that's the thing that uh, I think we've all got to be aware of, even in the current environment with trade, is that you just can't underestimate the importance of saving face, of looking like, uh, of giving, giving you know them the opportunity to have a way out. If their back is against the wall, they do things that you know we would never consider. And I'd, it's not right or wrong; it's just the way it is. And so I think that your know, confrontational politics or confrontational approaches with uh, with anyone from that sort of culture is is very fraught, and so you need to be considered in the way you approach it. Still, I'm, I'm not saying compromise on your values or your position. I'm not be true to who you are and what you stand for, but just be very careful about not putting them in a corner, and uh, because then un unnatural things happen. And when you stand back and look at what you covered during that period of time, David. Yeah. And you reflect on it, and if you're going to give advice to those coming through the ranks now, how how important is it to building relationships to get things done? Oh, really important. I mean, you you and 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 it isn't just superficial relationships; it's sort of building trusted relationships, and that means taking time to understand their perspective. You know, thinking about how they're approaching a problem or an issue, and also a little bit of give and take. But relationships will only go so far. I mean, it's very important, but you don't want to abuse the relationship either. And I'd say that's true for many agencies, but I'd also say it's true for us, Greg. You know, you know I know at times we, we're sort of more transactional, but the truth is I do business with people I trust, you know, and, and even though I've got a contract, you know, I, 
I can never write a contract that covers every eventuality. You know? oh, true. So trust is a big part of all our lives. And, and I think that's, you know, for colleagues throughout Southeast Asia, I think that's a big part of their lives as well. So you're working in one of the most famous organizations in the world, but out there quietly, maybe coming a bit louder, was the likes of these groups called Apple and Microsoft. What, what were you looking at from, you know, from the IBM lens to, to these organizations? Do you think they're going to make it, not make it? What, what was your thoughts? Well, I mean, it was an incredible period, wasn't it? Yeah. So you went from the mainframe world, then this whole PC world, well, it was distributed computing then, PC. That's where Apple had its genesis. Microsoft came through. Remember, IBM asked Microsoft to write, you know, the, the DOS disk operating system, the PC. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it was an exciting period. And then, you know, well, firstly, Apple, as the story everyone knows, it was, you know, on its knees what was the share price got down to some you know teens yeah, you know? Right. and what a what an incredible job that jobs did coming back in and saw the future but from an ibm perspective you know when i was there apple wasn't really seen as a major competitor it was you know it was a you know worthy competitor but it wasn't remember those days it was more the japanese lookalikes and mainframes it was you know apricot Compact, That's remember right. these yeah. HP, all these companies, <laughs> yeah. and Apple was there. But remember, they were a a very you know they had their own operating system. It was more for the art, you know, the education, artistic one. You know, really good, but it wasn't core business. Microsoft, on the other hand, um, was an operating system, and then it went into Office. So there was productivity tools. So they weren't really major competitors. They really sort of came through in the from the early nineties, late eighties, nineties, and then it went through. And I left in uh, nineteen, uh, well, actually, oh, nineteen ninety-eight, I suppose. So a little bit of the time. But yeah, I mean, I, isn't it great? I mean, I, is, I mean, I really rate such an Adela. I mean, what a wonderful leader he is. I mean, I've had the privilege to spend a little bit of time with him. Yeah, he's he's really taken it from where Barmer had it, and you know, look at the market cap, look at what they've done with Azure. I mean, they've reinvented and the cultures. You know, come back, really great. And Apple, you know, from Steve to Tim Cook, you know, Tim's done a great job of continuing that legacy. They really saw the the power of the intelligent, you know, phone, and then you, we all know the story about you know. Steve pulled together lots of technology, but, and I can remember, it's, I mean, not that I'm trying to, well, the team that was at Telstra, we actually built a, a phone with a touch screen with icons in it before the iPhone came out, but it was pretty rudimentary. I should quickly say, Greg, but so we all sort of knew the potential of a, of an intelligent handheld device, but Apple did it and then wonderful branding, form factor, design and and we we were using a korean supplier and i think java code java code Uh, those who remember it uh so you know so we all knew it but they were the ones who made it happen and then to see them sort of move through the ipad look at what they've done in terms of the app store i mean really creative uh, and great leadership and also just real discipline and rigor in their management style. So I really rate both companies very highly. How much is it in the marketing, David? Oh, look, you know, marketing 
is only as good as your product. I mean, in the sense that you know, you've got to market it, but the product's not great. It, it, it doesn't make a lot of difference. And I've always thought that you know, branding and marketing, you've got to keep them, you know, the innovation, your product, and your market position aligned. Because if they get out of kilter, then you've got real problems. And what happens is you lose trust and then, you know, your brand image drops really quickly. But, yeah, no, I think Apple have done a great. But, gee, I mean, they protect that, you know, Apple uh, image. I mean, you know, even when we would do an ad at Telstra, you know, to use the Apple image was sort of like going to Fort Knox, you know, sort of, you know, they, they don't live out of, Oh, the bag is he? So yeah, re- really important. But you do need to market. I mean, I I love marketing. You know, I really enjoy it. I love brand, and I love you know being able to promote a product and talk around how good it is, and to be innovative and a bit creative in that. I mean, what a that's what human beings are all about creativity. But you just don't want to get too far ahead of yourself. That's all. Why did you make the move, David? Depart from IBM and you go to go to Telstra. Well, look, it's a classic story of working for a you know, multinational. Look, I've been CEO of IBM Australia New Zealand Olympics. You know, we've done the last Olympics IBM ever did in 2000, well, 1999-2000. And I really had a choice either to move to the US to continue my career or to stay in Australia and to look for another career. There were two real factors for me um, on that. One was, as much as I enjoyed IBM, I I was the manager of a geography. I wasn't a listed company CEO. And and they're very different, very, very different. And I think people should really be aware of that. The other thing is I saw a lot of people who had done well and then went on the expat journey and then stayed out of the country too long. And when they came back, they found it really hard to, you know, fit in. And I mean, partly it's a fault of Australia. We're not good at accepting people who had wonderful careers offshore. Uh, but also sometimes they just had lost contact with what was going on in the local economy. So I think we've we've got to all step forward in that. And so I'd thought about that a lot and I decided that I wanted to stay in Australia and the family also, you know, they were. Uh, the, the, I think our eldest was just finishing HSC and things like that. So we made a decision. I want to be part of a listed Australian company, and I also had a great ambition to see Australian companies do well globally. And it's still a passion of mine, and we've got to do more of that for the good of the country. Yep. And I wanted to see if I could play a little role in that along the way. Okay, so you you sign up and you come on in. Yep. Were you impressed? with what you found? Was it cutting edge? Was it the thinking that you expected? Was it the government silo mentality? In all honesty, what did you walk into? Remember, I left IBM and I went to run the wireless division of Telstra, which then was a separate company called Telstra On Air, and it was standalone. We had our own P&L. And then literally within a month, we had, ah, geez, Jody Rich, you know, James and Lachlan failure of uh, oh, one, one tell. Uh, one tell yep. happened literally. And I, so I sort of walked into, well, what turned out to be a great opportunity because a lot of those customers migrated back to Telstra. But I sort of stepped right into it. Look, I really, I mean, in those days, I'm incredible, you know, appreciation of the engineering capability of 
of the Telstra and of the industry at that time. Probably the thing that struck me on the downside was the lack of, of this ambition to go broader. You know, it was, well, we're Australia, you know, we're really good at what we do, and we turn up to international meetings, do okay, but not this sort of, well, why aren't we looking at Indonesia? Why, what can we do in the Philippines? So, and, and that's also been, I think, both in the aspiration of, of lining things, but also the, the share market investors have always been a bit wary of Australian companies stepping out too much because we've had a few failures on the way. And I think that's really held us back. We should be far more outward focused, looking for opportunity, even if we fail, because that's the right thing to do in the long term. You served under a couple of interesting CEOs, Ziggy and then Sol. What did you learn? Well, I, I guess... Was Sol the, the sort of the, the original disruptor? We use that type of language. What what did you learn from both? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I, I mean, Ziggy hired me. I have enormous respect for Ziggy. He's you know, in incredible integrity. You know, a very you know smart guy, great values, and you know, a real team player. You know, he he was uh, you know one of the the great CEOs is one of the great CEOs, great chairmen. And I think he's a Absolutely. great chairman as well. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, I spent a lot of time with Ziggy. I mean, a very politically tough time for him. Remember, he'd come from Optus to uh, Telstra. Yeah, uh, in terms of so, yeah, look, he, he was one of the smartest business people I've met. You know, ambitious, driven, had ideas around, you know, behavioral market segmentation. He was incredibly, you know, deep in terms of driving change and building pace in a company. Like he used to force us to have, you know, six, 12-month product release plans. He got momentum behind the business. And so I learned a lot from him in, in some of those skills that I used and still use today. But on the other hand, he was so uncompromising. The arrogance got in the way. He, um, you know, I said it to him. I say it now. You know, he fell out of sorts on both sides of politics, and therefore became more isolated. and And in the end, was not uh, a good outcome for the company. But but you know, I do have a a view of you can learn from all people, and I learned a lot from Sol. I didn't. I don't do things the same as he did, but I, he's he has a lot of my respect for what he can get done. And he was a transformation change agent. And changing a big company like Telstra is not easy. No, no way in the world. So after eight years, David, yeah, you you get appointed to the number one gig. You fulfill that aspiration, as you say, CEO of a listed company. But it but it's all talk until you deliver. What did you set out to achieve? Oh, well, I can still remember the pitch that I made to the board. And I think the board was still a bit unsure about whether I was really the right guy or not, the right person. But I, I did have this real fundamental belief that Tulsa was a great Australian asset and, and that we needed to fulfill that opportunity, that place. And and that we could be, you know, a really differentiated provider of innovative technology. You know, there's a bit of an you know, unbelief that we could serve all customers. I mean, so many customers and remember 1.4 million retail shareholders. Yes. And 
And so I made a pitch basically saying, look, I think we can really build differentiation or create shareholder value through providing outstanding service with innovative products. And that was the pitch I gave. And, and the day that I became CEO, I remember walking to the Sofitel in Melbourne and it was sort of post-Soul. And every time Soul used to do a press release, there was sort of more press than than, than people normally. Uh, so I, I got the messages of sort of the, the tale of that. And someone said, you know, to me, which you obviously didn't know, he said, Mr. Bodie, Sol Trujillo was an agent of change. What would you stand for? And, you know, in those moments you can't really rehearse. And I said, yeah, he was an agent of change, but I will be an agent for the customer. And uh, came from quite deep down, you know. And uh, and I think that drove, you know, a lot of what we did in that period. Not perfect. It was a great period, but not a perfect period. And maybe we can talk a bit about that because it isn't just, it isn't just sort of a good feeling type customer service. Uh. You know, being customer centric is the only thing I know that will continue to keep a, a company, a big company, reinventing itself. And one of the problems I've seen in companies around the world is these sort of five, six year periods. They sort of go, they start and, you know, it's the, you remember, remember the big, we all need a burning platform, right? Yep, yep. Burning platform, throw out the CEO, throw out the management, and then they recover, share price comes better, then all, that all falls apart six or seven years later, then they start again. And, and I think that it's fundamentally, it's this, this thing around hubris and arrogance and becoming internally focused. If you're driven by the customer truly, you know, and, and, and listening to the customer, you never stand still, you never arrive, and it forces you to keep reinventing yourself. And I think that's what uh, has, you know, I've learned through that period. And that's why I think customer-centered, truly customer-centered organizations, you know, really do continue to drive value of shareholders. Okay, but let me ask you a couple of questions on that. And I agree, I agree with what you're saying, but as you know, every, every Australian has a different view on Telstra. Everyone's got a war story or frustration someone's dialed out and they've been you know, through a, a system in back of Philippines they've been held on, on telephone calls no one gets back etc then there's the flip side of all the good stuff that Telstra does so yeah what is customer service to the customer out there you know is it someone calls me back is it that things get done is there a follow-up because you say because or am I in the land of duopoly in Australia and I can get away with it what, what do you think, David? Because everyone has their fair share and everyone has the critics for Telstra. Yeah. The flip side, they don't understand the complexity of what you deliver and the scale of it. So yeah. what, how, do you, how do you answer that? Yeah. Firstly, customers should never have to understand the complexity of the, of the company they're doing business with. I mean, that's my problem, not theirs. You know? Yeah. But, you know, good customer service is about exceeding your expectation. You know, there's no, you know whatever expectation you have is, is somehow, you know, doing that in a better way. And to do that, there's a whole range of things. It, it is. It's from, you know, returning the call, following up, making sure things are done correctly. It's the culture. It's your attitude about how I engage with you and do I respect you. Not all customers are right, by the way. You know, <laughs> sometimes there's totally unreasonable customers. <laughs> true. But you, you, always, you always treat them with respect. You know, sometimes they decide to go somewhere else. You respect that decision as well. But also, you, you've also got to do what Apple does is design great product that is easy to use, that doesn't require you to ring up 
to complain about whatever's not working. So it's both cultural, it's about process design and simplification because mm-hmm. complexity is the curse of any company. Yep. And it's about great product design that is easy to use to make the difference in my life. Now, to your question around, you know, no, Telstra, even, you know, I, I never would I say that did we give perfect customer service. I mean, but every, but when we had failure, it's how you respond to the failure. You know, so if I if we've got a bad experience, it's about how do we recover from that and make sure the customer knows. It's like, you know, we had an adage there. Every complaint was an opportunity. If someone complained, get back, acknowledge it. So I'm sorry, I've got your complaint. I'll be back to you in three days. Let's see if we can solve it. So it's, and then the customer walks away saying, oh, well, they care. I was really annoyed, really you know, aggravated, but at least I did something about it. And look, it's, it's impossible to be 100%, right? But you can increment up. And I think people, you might, I think you're going to ask me this later on. You know, the most, the thing that I'm most, you know, pleased about after my time at Telstra was not the financial results, although I'm glad that they were good. It was we were voted the most respected company in Australia in 2014. That's right. Now, in 2009, the top 100, Telstra wasn't even in it. So something changed. Now, but we weren't perfect and we will never, and never be perfect. And yes, we did use offshore, you know, call centers, you know, but we always knew that was going to go digital. And by the way, you know, a lot of the complaints we had from so-called offshore core consultants were people in Perth, you know, yeah, right because right. we're a multicultural society. So, yep. you know, sometimes, you know, um, biases come in. But, yeah, we did. But, you, you know, you've got to be honest and straightforward about that stuff and then move on. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know, I don't know if that answers the question, but that was my perspective on it. Okay. But to deal with the customer, you, you've got to lead well, right, or you've got to structure your team. Yeah, you do. In the right manner. Bureaucracy is the killer, as they all say. It is. Overdoing too many meetings is the killer. So what is leadership for you? And how did you structure the team? And what sort of culture were you setting for leaders? Well, uh, I think, firstly, in building a team, I'll come back to talk about the qualities of the team members, but you, you do need to unite around something that's bigger than every individual in the room. You, you, so it's called purpose, aspiration, doesn't matter. But but it's, it, it's something that defines you as a group that only you as a group can do that that is external to you. So it's not about me. It's not around the people. It's about what art we will do to change. I mean, so for example, when I became CEO of Telstra, I tell you, the first 18 months, I wasn't invited to lunch with anyone. No one asked me to give speeches. No one asked me to do interviews. You know, it was head down, just work away. And uh, I think there were cartoons about me and, you know, all the normal carry-ons that happened. Yeah. But but that united us to say, well, you know, they, people may think that, but we don't believe that in ourselves. We're going to make a difference. That's number one. So to do that, you need people who are team players, yep. number one, but they need to be good at what they do. They need to have intellect. They need to have drive because it's not easy, you know. And there were some days, you know, after a 12-hour day, you're not feeling too good and you've got to get up and do it again. We'd have failures. 
you know, so you need resilience, you know, to get through that. And you need to have the values so you can trust each other, you know, because, you know, big organizations, you know, you've got to, you know, put the team to an extent, you know, a, a team of equals all working together. So getting the right values is really important as well. And and then you need people who, uh, you need diversity because you've got to create an environment where you want the truth, not the popular idea. And so it's okay to have challenge. It's okay to have tough discussions because in that process, you get to the right outcome. And sometimes you don't, and sometimes you've got to change the view. Well, that's fine. Get on and do it. So that's what I look for in in uh, in a team and in the quality of leaders going forward. So, David, what was the scale of the organisation when you were in charge, in the sense of sense of employees? I think we were probably about thirty seven thousand full time, and probably another six thousand you know, part-time cash, about 43. And remember through that period, we were taking a billion dollars of cost out every year. Wow. So we, I think we finished at around about 35,000, but we were taking people out, and reinvesting people elsewhere. I mean, Andy's done a great job in, you know, continuing to restructure the company. You know, it's a tough industry, you know, capital intensive. But yeah, so this constant change, constant sort of moving forward. So you can restructure companies and do it in a way that's respectful of individuals uh, making tough decisions. And you just got to do that. You got it, It's every day. Uh, it's uh, you know un, unceasing and you know, incessant. And, and and in your position as the CEO, how do you get your message across to the thirty-seven thousand people, David? How do you get consistency of message? As you know, the answer is communication, communication, communication. Uh, look, you can't do it all yourself. Firstly, you've got to know clearly what you stand for, what you're trying to achieve. And you do need, you know, as I said before, the curse of organizations is complexity, especially letting the customer know about it, but complex. So you've got to sort of net it down to what are the important things. And you do need to repeat it. But you then need to interpret it into every situation. Because you know, often you hear in change management, you know, the problem is, you know, it's the frozen middle, you know, middle management. You hear that sort of yes. comment, yeah. you know, and you know, so the, you know, the senior executives get the vision, the people in the front line. But actually, that's I think it's really wrong. Um, the people who who are middle managers are trying to interpret what these great visionaries in the organisation are saying, and the reality of trying to still deliver to customers and you've got to enable them to make those decisions consistent with your vision and where you're going and the reality of of restructuring how I'm going to manage with you know 5% less people whatever or 5% less budget so i think you've got to really lean in and enable them and help them face up to those problems and so that's the way you do it. And you need others around you who believe it and interpret it all the time. So that's why culture change is so important, because it's also how you express it, how you say it, what we stand for, and give people freedom to make decisions within that framework you set. Was there any particular organizations, David, that you were looking at as a model during that period of time? 
Look, it was a whole range of companies, actually, you know. Remember Starbucks was, you know, they were really, you know, we yeah. went and saw Starbucks. and You know, we did go and see Apple. We spent a bit of time, a lot, quite a bit of time with Google in those days because we could see things changing there. We, we we had a few telcos that we were really impressed with. KPN out of Holland in that time had gone through enormous change. So they were smaller companies, but they had really sort of driven um, the authentic leadership, but but it really reinvented themselves. But it's it, when you're doing change in a very large organization, it's multifaceted. You know, it's you know, yes, it's culture, but it's process redesign. It's product innovation. It's um, getting, you know, the capital allocations right. You've got to do all those things because I think that the most important thing in change is alignment, alignment of people to a grander vision and then getting everything working together, which and if you do it authentically, then you build this momentum. What I, I think you arrive at true transformation when the change comes from the people in the organization, not from management or some guy in sitting in an office where the ideas come forward from people in front of the customer who are doing things and you create this environment of continual change that's the sort of world we wanted and and you saw a lot of the companies out of silicon valley were like that um, not always perfect but we we like that I mean, Apple was great, but for different reasons. So, yeah, that was some of the companies we looked at. Just, just on that, David, do you have a view? There's debates either way from a leadership perspective that you just said change can transformation comes from the people. Yeah. Telstra have invested heavily in the last number of years, and so like a lot of other organizations, and partnered with some of the well-known strategy houses to deliver that transformation program. Yeah. Isn't that management's role or... Is that too simplistic? I'm bringing expertise in, but how long do they stay for? When is their role done? It's it's an interesting discussion when you're talking about the, the pace of change as well. Look, you need both. I mean, it, it's um, you know, there's no question that the responsibility of leadership is to is to look at the future uh, and and see the world of the possibility and then put in place plans to get there. Yeah. And that's where consultants come in and are helpful. Sometimes that means you've got to restructure the organization because you've got to align capability to what you're trying to do. But once you get that framework set, what you want to do is to enable the people within the organization to drive that change within their own area and give them the delegation to do that. Because that's where you really get, but it's got to be aligned. It's got to be within a certain structure. Otherwise, you've got anarchy. So you need both. Yeah, look, I mean, we use consultants and people came in. But, you know, and I'm sure the consultants would say it, they, they can only take you so far. Good business, you know, 96% is execution. Get the strategy right, 96% execution. Staying the course, making sure you're following up making sure you're driven by the metrics, not by opinions, you know, inspection, you know, being true to yourself, you know, all that stuff. So that doesn't change. I don't think it ever will change. Pretty exciting landscape out there at the moment, David. I was just sort of looking at it. If you look at 5G, it's it's not another G, is it? Mm. It's impressive. And we know it's going to change industry and business transformation. In your opinion, David, which industries will you see as the first movers with 5G? I agree with you. 5G is an incredibly 
enabling technology because it will just give faster capability, better latency, so we can do things in a, in a more predictable and faster way. The industries that I think will change, I think there'll be quite a bit within you know, some of the essential services areas like road management, traffic management, those sort of you know, really important things for society to work. Obviously, there's the home and there'll be some wireless technology there, but put that aside. I think it's going to be enormous change for the health industry because it'll be real-time analytics and diagnosis and that both the access but also the intelligence, the AI that goes around it. I think it'll continue to change education and entertainment will be enormously impacted. But coming back to the infrastructure, I think supply chain management and getting greater efficiencies, especially as we're looking at how we can shorten supply chains. I mean, still, you know, or even, um, you know, things like food providence, you know, the whole area around I'm eating, a, you know, I'm in Tokyo, I'm eating a, a mango that's been grown in, you know, the, the northwest, and I can see it'll connect me to the, to where it was grown. I think that's the sort of thing that we're going to create real value going forward. So, yeah, that'd be the ones I'd say. Yeah, 5G is really important. It's, um, yeah, it's a lot of, lot of capital for the telcos. Though. Yeah, and where do you see the role of government in stimulating and supporting 5G? I think governments set the environment for the private sector to invest, you know, and and governments should only step in when there's market failure, and I think most governments would agree with that. There is creating the environment, making the spectrum available in a, you know, uh, in a fair, equitable way, not overcharging, not undercharging. Uh, also, they need to look at the whole digital equity issue because, you know, you... You know, as a private uh, company, you would not necessarily invest 5G in some remote location. So I think there's a role for market failure for governments to step in there. But I think creating this environment where, you know, we can, you know, private sector can invest capital, get a return for shareholders is what the government should primarily be doing. And David, how do you see, I guess, edge computing from your experience in IoT creating new business models? Yeah, well, I... I think the biggest thing around digital enablement uh, and which goes across IoT, artificial intelligence, all those areas, is that it does create the possibility of new business models. So I think that for IoT and edge computing, these are enabling technologies that allow us to do things faster, better. But still you need, you know, you need to make a difference. You need to do something. All you're really doing is putting greater intelligence in, into physical things that can make decisions and then, you know, take action. Uh, edge computing is just putting computational power closer to the end user. Mm-hmm. And so they're all good inventions, but of themselves, they mean nothing until it makes a difference. I mean, just think around, you know, your iPhone. I mean, the iPhone is a sort of form of edge computing, isn't it? It is. And and so all the things we can do here from health monitoring, you know, to enabling video and connecting things back, that's what the power is. And then more and more, these will be an accumulator of data that can be aggregated together to make better decisions. That's what I see as the power of edge. IoT is going to be really important in things like intelligent roading, intelligent 
building capabilities, self-monitoring, self-maintaining, and getting to preventative maintenance. That's their big payback, really. And do you see a, um, a whole new infrastructure segment around the towers, uh, data centers, smart poles, et cetera, which we should start thinking about? I think that there's unquestionably the valuations on infrastructure companies are very high because it's it's no different to um, you know toll roads, uh, you know big capital outlays, long term guarantee you know, cash flows coming in. Therefore, people can see you know good returns in the future. And the thing that has happened in many of the telcos is that the that asset value has been sort of caught in the bigger organization. So the telcos are splitting them out to be able to recognize the value. So yeah, I think it is really important. Um, smart poles, smart towers are all going to be important going forward. I think it might go through a cycle. You do? High value, high multiples now, you know, hopefully not too low. I think it'll come back a bit in the longer term, but still, still worth doing now. David, winding back the clock, what were your thoughts in those heavy days when Suggestion of NBN was to be created. Oh, it was uh, it was a tough period, Greg. It went when um, you know your one of your core assets is being basically renationalised. Absolutely, yeah. And it was a difficult one because uh, there was the Telstra Act that we really didn't have much option. So it was, I think, someone says, but like a gun at your head. We weren't very popular, so we didn't have a lot of sympathy out there in the market as we were talking about before and you know we had to to look at what was i was there to act in the best possible interest of shareholders in the environment in which we i was presented with so yeah it was really hard it's proven to be a difficult period for the company but you got it you sometimes these things happen you got to make the most of them and i think that's always been the attitude i took we we did as good a deal as we possibly could under the structure in the interest of shareholders. And then you got to get on and do what you've got to do. So, yeah, it was hard. And in the interest of the Australian customer, what do you think? Was it, was it, was it the right decision ultimately or not? This is a, uh, well, this is an interesting one. I think probably a better decision would have been a collaboration between Telstra and the government to get, I think it would have been a cheaper and could have been a faster implementation. However, I do think that on reflection, the role of government in providing essential communication services is something that they need to be involved in for the equity of the nation. So those nations that have fast broadband, you know, equitable access in the information age are doing better than those countries that don't have it because of just the nature of it. I think that the ideal outcome would have been to find some partnership arrangement uh, that leveraged the capability of Telstra. In the end, they had ended up rebuilding Telstra as NBN. Yeah. And, and that's cost uh, government a lot of money. Will they see the returns of it? Well, I mean, they might, um, depending on how valuations go, but it still could have been done a lot faster. So I think there was another way through it, but in the environment, we had back in um, 2009, it, it, it just wasn't really on the table. Fair enough. If I got the phone call from a good search firm and I'm coming down to meet Mr. Thode in an interview at Telstra, what, is, what, is he, what does he look for for the, for the competencies and the skills to join his team? 
as a CEO, I'm looking for, you know, obviously domain excellence. I'm looking for good values, you know, people that align to our our long-term aspirations. I'm looking for team player. I'm looking for someone with a little bit of edge, you know, because I don't want, you know, I like people with edge. Um, you know, not going to, we're not compliant, but are willing to, you know, test the boundaries, but within a within an environment of the greater good, as we've talked about before. But yeah, you you want people who bring something to the table and are willing to test and question and, and say, well, is there a better way? And are not happy with the status quo. I like people who want to reinvent, you know, drive change, be better than we were before. Always remember. First CEO, I worked for a guy called Baz Logan and IBM. He said, he said, David, you know, the best thing alive in your career, he said, never leave a job you do the same way you found it. Always, always invest something in. Leave it differently. Don't, doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't matter if you're, you know, if you're, you know, cleaning the floors, you know, find a way to do it better because that's, that's what life's about. And that's what you want in, in uh, a good leader. You talk a lot about values-based leadership, David, and you also talk about, and it's bandied around a lot these days, authenticity. Yeah. Now, let me ask you, when you talk us through what that actually means, but what about authenticity in the sense now that we're in a politically correct world? How does that come into it? Yeah, well, I, I, I must admit, I, I sometimes you know worry that this term has lost sort of its meaning a bit. But look, authenticity to me is pretty straightforward, you know, you want people who've got integrity. You want people who are honest, you know. And when I say honest, not just tell you the bit of truth they want to tell you, but are willing to be straightforward, you know. And and I understand there's times you can't say everything, but within that, they've got integrity. And the other thing is transparency, you know, willingness to be open, to be measured by a standard that's sort of outside of all of us that I'm, I don't set, you know, the standards I'm in not perfect, but I'm willing to be held accountable. And, and that's authenticity. And we unfortunately find a lot of people who want to twist the truth to make themselves look good. You know, who are willing to reinterpret what's happened. And, you know, we've seen in politics, people who just, you know, literally lie and, that's uh, just not acceptable because because truth does mean something. I mean, and if you're trying to create sustainable value for shareholders, mm-hmm. that's what my job is. Yep. And it's over the long term, not this quarter. You need to have integrity. You need to be able to go the long thing. You don't need to be keep you know revising the truth or reinterpreting the past. So that's why I think authenticity is really important. Also, I think when you're dealing with people, they have the right to know who you are, what you stand for, and and then make a decision about what they want to do. That sort of is about respect for, for everyone. Everyone has the right to work for who they want to work for, do whatever they do, and they have the uh, the right to know who the sort of people who are they working with. Yeah, so that may be why I think it's important. When you call it a day and you look back, happy of what you achieved? Yeah, yeah. Look, I am, but I don't always sort of think about it like that, Greg. I mean, I, I, I'm look. I'm sure there's things you can do better. You know, none of us sort of get everything right. I don't have any great regrets, but 
but I enjoyed it. I, I really got incredible satisfaction from it. You know, people who uh, I work with, I have enormous respect for. They were part of the story as well, you know, and it was a period of my life. It wasn't, it, it doesn't define who I am, you know, my family. And, you know, there's lots of other things to define who I am. You know, it's not, wasn't everything to me, but I did the best I possibly could. And, and enjoyed it along the way, and and we had some good success. There are a few things that made lots of bad decisions along the way too. You know, like I should have sold Census. You know, about three years earlier, I, we ended up selling it for nine hundred million. And I think when I started as CEO, uh, we could have got I don't know four billion for it because the yellow pages were still pretty current then. So you know, you make mistakes as well. Just on that, David, as a as a CEO mm. of recent times, a couple of conversations we've had. A number of them said you can't overanalyze it to death and that intuition, we don't understand enough about intuition. In your decision formula, does a lot of analysis, how much is on intuition, how much is gut instinct? Where, where, does, it, where does it come for you? Yeah, interesting. I, 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 I hadn't heard some of those comments. But look, I think you've, you've, got, to, you've got to do a bit of analysis because you've got to test your assumptions, right? So you've got to do your homework, but then you do get to instinct. You know, you do get to your gut feeling and you do need to trust it because you can never get perfect data. You can never, you can be there analyzing till you're, you know, black and blue in the face. So, but you do need to be disciplined and rigorous in the way you approach it. Understand the assumptions you're using around whatever analysis you're doing. And then, then you have an instinct and then you test yourself with it. And you, you know, we walk up, you know, this thing around bias and, you know, I see the world in a certain way. And you want people around you who are going to test that and say, well, hang on, David, you know, is that really true? And then and, and get that through and then make the decision on one way or the other. So, I mean, I would like we're talking around the Japanese for Nimawashi consensus building. Take that too far. It's just, you know, it just atrophies, you know, it's too slow. So you've got to find that nice balance in the middle. That's what I'd say. Early days at IBM, you mentioned that the company had considerable investment in R&D. Yep. One of your next moves is into the world of R&D, CSIRO. Yeah. Talk us through that. I, I've always, I mean, you know, CSIRO is our national science agency. It, it's an incredible, it's sort of an icon of Australia. It's one of the few national science agencies left in the world. You know, it's delivered enormous innovation through its 100-year history. You know, it's had its ups and downs through that period. You know, the people at CSRO, you know, wonderful scientists. You know, we, we're in the Australia's schools in the top six, seven percent of scientists in the world, you know, in terms of, you know, quality. Wow. Where we don't do as well is the commercialization, you know, from taking science to commercialization. So, yeah, I, I had the um, incredible, you know, privilege of being asked to chair it, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, you know, it's one of the great pleasures I have every month, you know going and seeing, you know, parts of the organisation. It's very broad. You know, it works from, you know, work on the Great Barrier Reef to Ningaloo Reef, you know, marine biology. We've got the investigator that does all this, you know, work around the shores of Australia through to the, you know, um, uh, Infectious Diseases Centre down in Wollongong. You know, it's very, very broad. You know, we do all the mineral work, automation, artificial intelligence. So it's great. And I'm a great advocate for research and development and innovation. And I think it does define a nation and defines a business. And we need to keep 
investing in creating the future because that's really important. So I think where you're going with your question, what, what's my view on R&D in Australia? Interesting, I've got to say, the, the actual percentage allocated to R&D has declined from 2.1%, 2.2% of GDP to about 1.8%. So it's on the decline. Okay. What people don't understand is actually most of that decline has come from the private sector. It's about a 50-50 split. And it was, when it was a 2.2, it was about 1.1 government, 1.1 industry, and most of the decline has been in industry R&D. Government, you know, is contention best. You know, the investment CSIRO, you've got, you know, the biomedical translation fund, you've got the clean energy fund, you've got main sequence ventures. There's a lot of investment. Now you've got modern manufacturing fund that's coming through. Yes. The question is, are we as a nation, private sector, creating an environment for the private sector to invest? That's the big question. And uh, we've had the R&D tax incentive, which, uh, you know, it's about what? You know, a few billion a year. It, it, it's been very tightly defined and it's quite, it's quite a process to go through to get the tax credit. Yeah. And it hasn't always included software. And I think we've got to keep redefining that going forward. But I also think that I think we've got to look at Australian companies and say, well, what percentage of your, you know, expenditure is going to R and D, and we need to encourage you to do it more. Governments is it up to governments to give tax incentives for R and D, you know, all the time. I mean, it's got to be part of the, you know, the objectives of the company. So we've got to find the right balance there. But I. We do need to address it. I, I am worried we're not investing enough going forward. What about the other side of the equation, the commercialization of the hard work done at CSIRO? You said we're good, but we're not necessarily where we could be. Yeah, it, it, that's an overall statement for Australia. If, if you look at all the um, the scores from OECD, we're sort of pretty low down in the ranking. I think we'd be at in the middle at best. Commercialization, well... Actually, let, let me be clear. What, and does that mean profit? What does that actually mean, David? Well, well, I was just going to say, driving value from great science, and it can be value to, to the community, value to the environment, or value commercial. You've got, it's not, it's not, you've got to work hard at it, and there's lots of different ways you do it. So the way we've found at CSR, we have a whole division that goes from IP management all the way through to doing joint ventures about how to commercialize the science we do. And and it's a it's a skill set that is hard to find and takes a long time to develop. So we've got a group of maybe about 60 people and we have seven pathways to value creation. Right. And we, every year we, we hold the most patents in Australia, but we've got to really work hard to make them, you know, worth real you know create real value so it's it's a process and it's a way of thinking and it's a uh, and you've got to really invest time in it so that's what i think we need to do more of. and by the way the universities are really good at this i mean we've got a wonderful universities in australia with some of the best in the world we've got to help them do it they've got to do education and some of this research work as well are you a bit worried then despairing what you're saying what at 2.1 down to 1.8 percent we are Coming out of COVID, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. What's the repercussions going to be there on longer term on the investment then? Is it still going to keep sliding? 
I, I hope not. I hope not. Look, we've got to we've got to keep making. Well, one, we've got to invest, um, and so university says, "Sorry, we need to make this attractive." And we've got to keep showing the value that we're creating. For example, um, beef to foods, which has been this, um, oh, yeah. you know, yep. plant-based meat. Yep. I mean, what a wonderful story that's been, you know. Uh, and we need to celebrate the success and then let people see the real outcomes of it. Or some of the work we've done with batteries. I mean, it's not just CSR, it's just right across the community. So we've got to make it attractive and then capital will flow into that area. We are seeing more capital, venture, cap, you know, venture capital coming, money coming to venture capital. Okay. Yeah, and and maybe some of that money may have been going off into R and D, but that's so we've got to be careful what we're measuring. But I think if we make it attractive, I think the money will come back. We've got to keep talking about why it's important. I mean, I think the government at the moment are probably more pragmatic in saying, okay, we're up for it. But just show me the outcome. So that's what we try to focus on at the moment. You don't sit still for too long, David. I see you're you're pursuing the career in the boardroom. Yeah, right. Yeah. One, I can understand. I can understand why you've done it. Are you enjoying it? Is it measuring up to what you hoped for? Is there the right conversations being had? Are the shareholders getting their return from the decisions being made? What's what's your what's your overall view? What's happening out there, David? When I left Telstra, I did, I'm not sure if I said to you, but I said to a few people, <clears throat> I have no desire to go on a listed company board. Um, yeah, yeah, I do. And it was more just a, I just needed time out. However, now, as you know, uh, I've, I'm on three at the moment. I was on the Vodafone International Board, uh, and then I do CSR as well. Look, the truth is that um, I think boards play a really important role uh, with companies. Um, they, good boards are able to challenge, support, engage with management to, to, on the interests of shareholders to really drive improvement. A good board. If I'm a shareholder, we finally got Mr. Thody on the board. Am I getting the best out of what he's got to offer? And as others would say to us, as you know, David, gee whiz, I feel like I'm more of a compliance officer. We're not spending enough time and using me to my skill set. Yeah, I think 20% of the time, I think the governance is getting the way. However, I mean, what I choose to do in these situations, so let's take Tyro, where we have a banking license and yes. we're regulated by APRA. There's an enormous amount of, you know, uh, regulation and uh, we need to cover them risk compliance. I, my view is risk management team, you get it set up thing. It's foundational. Just make sure we don't, we're within the um, parameters and then we'll get on and run the business. So, we're very disciplined in that, and then we put it to the side. We look at it, we manage it, we appreciate all the all the metrics we've got to look at. But it's only one part of what we do, so I don't let it get in the way. Now, sometimes I, you know, I think, gee, do we have to really go through this fifteen-page document on, you know, liquidity management? But it, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just that I know what we've got to do. So I think you can measure it. I. I don't enjoy it, you know, all the time. But if you get good people around you, I think you can do it. But look, boards are there to keep pushing organisations forward to create value, and and that's where we've got to focus. We've got to obviously the governance role to make sure it's all going okay. I do question sometimes that we're being held responsible 
the too much, like culture, etc. Absolutely. When it's very hard to manage and measure, really hard. But we do have a responsibility to work with management, and that's a bit of judgment as well as process, etc. So yeah, it's 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 a complex equation, and I. Uh, but I think boards do make a difference. I think that I would say, though, I don't think being a director on a board is what everyone should aspire to do. Because you're a CEO doesn't make you a good board director. You know, because you're good at compliance doesn't necessarily make you a good board director. You've got to have a mix of skills and be clear about why you want to do it. Because it's got to be about making a difference, being able to work with management to create value. And so often I sort of, you know, I, I worry that people, you know, think, well, I'm going to have a career and I'm more worried about how many boards I'm on and how much I'm getting paid. That's not what you should do. You should do because you believe in the company, you, you believe in the people, you want to work with a good group of people, you want to be challenged and inspired going forward. And yes, there's some government stuff along the way you've got to do. Do you see the composition of the boards changing? And the only reason I say that, you know, everyone's reading in the press arguments around cyber technology, new technology, AI. Is are the board informed enough? The criticism from the CEOs: I'm spending 90 percent of my time educating a board. Are we going to see a change in the boardroom composition and skill sets? Well, let me try to. There's a lot in there. Uh, Firstly, CEOs to boards, CEOs should work to get the best out of the board, right? So stop being passive and saying they don't give me stuff. You need to be the one to say, I, I need this from you. And, and you'll be surprised the richness you'll get back because they come, they may not be an expert in the, every which part of your business you are, but they bring you perspective to make you sure you make a better judgment. So that's the first point. In terms of this digital stuff on boards, I'm really worried that there's abdication going on. Yeah, um, I agree. Yes, you need to look at your skills matrix. But look, I'm, I'm on a board. I'm, I did not do an accounting degree, but I know how to read a balance sheet. I know a P&L. I know cash flow. I, need to, I know capital markets. So I've, I've learned those skills. With digital, every board member needs to have a, a, a capability around understanding digital change and digital disruption. And you can't just hire someone onto a board and say, oh, well, you're the digital expert. What are we going to do now? Because it's part of everything we do. So board members and boards need to keep re-educating themselves and moving forward because I worry that that you know, suddenly the answer is, oh, we'll just hire someone. Yes, you need the skills matrix, but you need to do some things together as a board. Will there be changes, you know, in terms of uh, generational change? Look, I I look for the quality of the people, not their age or which group they come from. You know, are they change agents? Are they, are they continue to re-educate themselves? Are they leaning forward? Are they bringing energy? Are they bringing different views are they really part of that's what you want in board members what you don't want is passive people going through the process you know warming the seats you want people engaged in driving change and bring good judgment and know the difference between a board and line management that's what you want in good board directors do you think boards meet too often 
through COVID, they do. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, look. No, because look, the Americans are about, you know, four times, maybe five times a year. The English, the UK, what, six to eight. And Australia seems to be a lot more. Now, some will argue that's terrific governance and we show the way. Others would say, really, that's a bit over the top. Where, where, Where do you sit on that? I'm in the six to eight camp. Yeah. Yeah, I think four is too few. You know, I mean, I mean, how how do you know what's going on a company and what forming six to eight's about right. And and in in the sort of and you need you need time to look at strategy together as well, which I'd include in you know maybe seven or eight. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah, but no, um, every month is just crazy. I, I don't know how people do it. Yeah, you know, obviously, David, you you always like you said earlier very busy. Now we've got the, the we've got the climate leaders coalition driven by the the b team initiative what is that what is that good question well firstly yeah i am busy but i i still make a lot of time to do what i want to do you know so the great thing about having a bit more of a portfolio i can you know take time out look the climate leaders coalition is actually a concept came out of new zealand oh right and yeah when when new zealand decided to go to net zero they said business we want you to step up and look at what you're doing. So, and all it is, it's a forum where CEOs can come together to share, you know, best practice. So if you look under the Paris Accord, you know, scope one, two, and three, there's certain things we as CEOs or chairman we need to do. For investors, they ask for your ESG plan, you know, which includes your emissions target. Really hard for some companies. Um, If you're going to go to net zero by 2050, whatever date it is, I mean, let me take CSIRO. We've got 65 uh, locations around Australia. Some of them were built in the 30s. I tell you, they're not environmentally really that attractive. Mm. And to actually get them to, say, using solar or whatever, we need to spend capital to get them there. And so trying to look at how you invest to get to a net zero world is actually really hard. Uh, So what the CLC does is actually creates a forum of people to just share what they're doing. People can learn from each other. There's no, you know, there's no, what you know, judgment of what they're doing. And then it's got some working groups where they're looking at tough problems in terms of, you know, various, you know, technologies or, you know, how they handle the investment criteria or looking at suppliers you know, what their uh, carbon emissions are. So that's what it is. It's a forum for discussion between business leaders. How, how big is the team? Uh, I think at last count it was about 24 CEOs. Yeah. And you're in, what's, your, what's your aim? What's the, what's the, what would you love to see there as, as the team? Look, I mean, I think the only definition is whether they get value from it because we're not there to force any outcome, except we believe in net zero, um, because we think it's a really important issue for the world, uh, and we need to do our own thing. So the, the, the actual measure of success is whether they get value out of it. But I do hope that some ideas come out of it as well that can be shared more broadly in the business community about how you actually, you know, do it, execute going to net zero in your own company. And so we can, maybe share some best practice going forward would be really great. And have you got in your mind, Dave, what do you think is net zero achievable for the nation? Oh, yeah, I do think it is achievable. I think we've, 
I think you've already seen the rhetoric change in Canberra. It was net zero in the, by the second half of the century. It's now net zero as quickly as possible. And and obviously with the changes in, in uh, leadership that uh, in the US, I think there'll be a different position going forward. Yeah, look, it is, it is, it is very possible. You know, it's doable. And if we get it right, you know, enormous export opportunity too. You know, uh, renewable energy technologies. Uh, we have this incredible reservoir of capability that could be a really good business going forward, export business. How do you see the economy at the moment, David, and going forward for the next 12, 18 months? I'm actually reasonably optimistic. I think, um, you know, employment numbers are coming up very quick, far more quickly than we expected, and that's really encouraging. Look, obviously, the... Um, you know, the going through into the first half of uh, 21 is going to be the critical period. We might have a few, you know, bumps along the way, but I have an incredible confidence in the resilience and um, entrepreneurial nature of our economy. And people, you know, it's amazing what people have done, you know, even during COVID and lockdown, how they kept their business going. Obviously, e-commerce has been a big part of that digital enablement, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm actually very confident. I mean, obviously, we've got to, you know, we need to keep exports strong, you know, yeah. both in resources and ag. It'd be great to see the higher education sector come back. It would be great, but we need to tread warily there. I mean, my biggest hope, Greg, is that we continue to develop what I call the third leg of the stool, which is these knowledge-based industries, you know, in health, technology, we can do better in those sectors and they're great export opportunities. So you look at what's going on in Victoria, you know, around biotech, medtech. Victoria has, is one of the, you know, has one of the best biotech environments. I mean, they've got the investment going in from uh, University of Melbourne, uh, RMIT's involved and they're building out this whole precinct, and they've got big visions. But even now, you look at the number of biotech companies starting up there in Victoria and in Brisbane, yep. enormous of it. And a lot of that is based around you know, really innovative drug, genetic engineering. This is exciting stuff and very exportable. But it also goes from there into medtech. We've got the cochleas, but there's lots of other work going. We've obviously got CSL, but yep. we need to build around those companies and really drive forward. The, in terms of the tech sector itself, if you look at Europe, put, us, put the US aside, most of the European companies, their tech sector is about 8 to 9% of GDP. We're only about 5 to 6% of GDP. Okay. So we under-index. And so I think that, that software is the name of the game. That's why Atlassian staying in Australia is great, but it's also all the other companies like Canva and uh, you know, those, those, you know, Seek and et cetera, Xero as well. So I think we need to uh, continue to invest in those industries. And I think they can really play an important part in uh, the economy going forward. So for jobs, et cetera. And, and David, what is the Tech Central precinct then? Uh, well, the Tech Central precinct is, is come out of, you know, originally it was going to be the Australian Technology Park and there was going to be White Bay. This is, you know, version three. And it, it, I was involved in some work about 18 months ago looking at could we take central area, Ultimo, Piedmont, going through into Surrey Hills and in a bit of Redfern mm -hmm. and take that whole area, working with Sydney University and with the um, 
University of Technology, ABC, and actually built out a whole tech precinct. Uh, Atlassian's moving there. A lot of the venture capital companies moved to Surrey Hills. There's the robotics side. You've got the new advanced manufacturing company at Sydney University. You've got the nanotech center at Sydney University as well. Robotics center at UTS. Quantum computing capability academy in the area as well. And then we want to make it uh, an environment where people will come and be based even in a COVID or new COVID world. You still need locality. That's what we're paying to do and get a mixture of uh, attract you know, innovative companies and some large corporations. So if we can do it, I think it'd be great. And it will cover off tech. It'll be a bit of health, a bit of advanced manufacturing, et cetera. So really exciting. The negative which comes up is around AI, unemployment or the prediction of unemployment. What, what, what do you think of that? Or, you know, the losing of jobs because machine learning is going to replace people. Yeah, I say... Um, in 1915, when the auto industry started, they said that they were going to put all these people out of a job. And last numbers I looked at, you know, the, the number of jobs have improved enormously in the last sort of you know, 100 years. So, no, I, I, I understand it's got dislocation. I understand people need to change jobs, but I, I think technology creates new opportunities going forward and improves quality of life and I think can create better quality jobs going forward. Okay, now what about we've got this thing where technology organisations are our providers of news, and the big debate of late was around censorship, and it's, I'm sure it's going, and you talked about it, remarked about it you know, all those years ago when you were at IBM and splitting of organisations. Where, where do you see you know, the, this? Because it is concerning if that's the case. Well, there's been, there's two current issues. One is the censorship issue and the freedom of speech. And then the second issue is actually this whole question around content and who pays for content. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yep. Yeah. So let's take the probably easy one is who pays for content. I think there is a financial transaction that needs to go on. Now, I don't know what the, the ins and outs are, but good journalism is worth something. you know. But a good journalist also needs wide distribution. So, you know, if I write something using social media to get it out there, that's I get a lot of value from that because I get heard and there's a dialogue created. So I think we've got to be careful not to overplay this because a good journalist needs, you know, the newspaper or the social media. But good journalism costs money. Someone's got to pay for it. And, uh, and I think we need to recognise the product, you know, uh, content is king. In terms of censorship, Look, you know, like we live in a free society, freedom of speech is very important. However, the, the perpetuation of lies and mistruths is also unacceptable. True, true. So the question is who has the right to choose what's true and not true? And that's where I think the social media platforms are saying is, look, you know, we, we'll take what action when we know it's blatantly mistruth or... Uh, it's just perpetuation of a lie. But it's a very fine line where you're starting to get into censorship and stopping the freedom of speech. So I think that we should err on the side of being a little bit more, don't over-regulate it because you want freedom of speech. But if it's blatantly a lie, then I think there is a responsibility. Just like if a newspaper publishes something incorrectly, they've got to take action. 
Yeah. So does the social media. So I think that's what I'd say. But what about when they were asked about, are you listening to us? And, you know, for years, no, we're not, no, we're not. And ultimately they fessed up and said, yes, we have been. What happens there? That's that's a bit scary. It is it is scary. And, um, and I think it's very important that they are, you know, absolutely open about what they are listening to and what they do with it. And now, but, you know, as you know, um, privacy is an interesting thing for all of us. Um, like I sign up to... Google, mm. knowing that they are probably seeing, you know, what I do queries on, but the value I get from it is so high, I'm willing to take that risk. But that should be my decision, not anyone else's. So I think what you've got to do is create an environment where people may have the right and the opportunity to make the decision. But privacy to you and me are probably different things. Privacy to my son and I are very different things. So we just got to render it explicit and make a decision point in the process. And like Google has done, give you the ability to control, you know, what what you see, what you don't see, what they see. And I think they've done some quite good work in that area over time. Last two questions, David. Do you mentor people? I do. Though I, I'm not sure I'm a great mentor because I probably learn more, more from the people I, I meet with than uh, actually uh, – me giving any great sagely advice. Yeah, no, there's a number of people I I meet with and try to at least sort of you know engage and hear about the wonderful things they're doing. And uh, sometimes I have an opinion <laughs> occasionally. And if you were to look back at that young gentleman who was started who was studying anthropology all those years ago, yeah, what advice would you give him now? I I think two things. One is Spend, I'd say, spend more time thinking about what you really is important to you. By the way, that's true for all of us. At times, you know, in our careers, you just got to do what you got to do. But it's it's like strategy, or you need to make time to think in your life. You're like I put time in my diary to think, you know, and it's sort of it seems contradictory, you know, to have to put time, but it's really important. So. But spend time. I mean, even when I I stop full time so called work, it's really so you got to give yourself time to think about what you really want to do. So you just don't follow uh, you know, a certain road. That'd be the one thing. And and the second one we talked about it is um, you know trust trust your own judgment. You know, do your thinking, but you know give it a go. I mean, what can go wrong? I mean, oh, you're not killing anybody or doing anything, but Push the boundaries. Um, the people who play it too safe just, I think, lose opportunity. And often it's sort of the willingness to step out and try things, even if they fail, that really create great leaders and great people. I mean, great leaders, you know, they fall over, they get things wrong, but they get back up again and do it again. And I, you know, I think about all the wonderful people I've worked with over the years. You know, some of them have not achieved what they were capable of achieving, because, and they're probably more intelligent than many of us, because they got sidetracked or they didn't have the discipline in their lives to really see it through. So give it a go, you know, step out, take a bit of risk and make sure you enjoy it as well. That's what I'd say. On that, David, I really appreciate you making the time today. No, it'd be my pleasure. 
been we covered a lot of ground, but it's been uh, my great pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to No Limitations. Mm-hmm.